Bienvenue. Hello and welcome. Welcome to City Breaks Marseille, Episode 2. I'm Marion Jones and I'm calling this episode 10 Places Where You Can Find History in Marseille. I think I mentioned in the previous episode that Marseille is France's oldest city, somewhere where you can find 26 centuries of history. So yes, I'm going to boil it down to just 10 places. I've picked them quite carefully. I'm going to run through them in chronological order. And on the way, I'm going to tell some of the stories behind the places. So that hopefully by the end of the episode, you've got an overview of the history of Marseille and a good idea about places that you might be passing en route to somewhere else, or in some cases, might specifically seek out and go and visit. And this episode then is the place where the bulk of the stories about the past of Marseille will be collected, but not all of them, because I'm saving one or two big hitters for a bit more space in future episodes. Places like Notre-Dame-de-la-Garde, for example, I'm going to mention it briefly here, but talk much more about it in the next episode, and the Chateau d'If. Don't think I'll be mentioning the Chateau d'If at all today, but there's plenty of history there. It's a very short boat ride from the old port in Marseille, and it will get proper attention in a later episode. So then, to start at the beginning, down at the harbour, if you stand a little to the right of the canopy and look down at your feet, you'll find a large brass plaque set into the paving stones, which commemorates the arrival of the Greeks. And it reads, at least it would if it were in English, like this. Around 600 BC, Greek sailors landed here from Phokia in Asia Minor. They founded Marseille and civilization shone out into the west from here. So, a historical fact, the Greeks arrived in 600 BC or thereabouts, but there's a nice legend to go with it, an embroidering, if you will. And that centres around the story of one Nan, N-A-N-N, who was the king who ruled in the mountains inland from Marseille round about the time that the Greeks arrived. There are two other characters in the story, his daughter Gyptis, and a young Greek hero called Protis. So, the Phocians arrived, they liked the look of the place, thought about setting up here, and decided that they would send Protis, who was a bit of a hero, off to meet the ruling king and see what could be arranged. So off he goes, and as he arrives, it just happens to be the day of his daughter's wedding. A huge feast has been prepared, and in these enlightened times, you'll be pleased to know that what was going to happen next was that Chiptis was going to be asked to choose from all the men assembled at the wedding which one she would like to marry. So the moment arrived, she's given a jug of water, and she's asked by her father to give it to the man she chooses. And you can imagine the scene, all the locals are lined up, each as expectant as the last. They've probably all been preparing for this for years. And what does Gyptis do? She chooses the newcomer, Protis. She has to get her father's approval, and he gives it. He's actually quite canny, I think, because he decides this is a good moment to drive a deal. And while he agrees that the Phocians can settle here, begin trading here, in return, he wants them to agree that they will help export local products and do the local economy a lot of good at the same time. And this they agree to. So from then on, animal skins and oil and dried fish and pottery and all of those things that came from the area are off to further lands. In Greek boats, the economy starts to boom and everyone is happy ever after. At least I hope so. 
However much of that is actually true, it certainly is the case that the Creeks settled and had a major impact on the area. They settled first around the harbour and on the hill where the Fort Saint-Jean is. They spread gradually over the hillside just to the north of the harbour where the Le Panier district is now. And really, gradually, gradually, it became very much like a Greek settlement. Tacitus, OK, writing several centuries later, called this area the Athens of the Gauls. So saying it was hardly French anymore, it was almost Greek. They built at least three temples, to Apollo, to Artemis, to Athena. Don't think there's any trace of any of those left. They built a marketplace, the Agora. They brought with them vines and olives from Greece, both of which, of course, have been staple products here ever since. They were very big on education. They had a university. They had a school of rhetoric where the sons, yes, I'm afraid, just the sons of the top families were taught oratory and philosophy. They were politically sophisticated too, all based on the ideas of Aristotle. So the city was ruled by an assembly of 600 elected members, 15 of them forming the higher council. So really all very Greek, as commented on by a number of people. I saw one guidebook description of Massalia, as Marseille was known at the time, as being, quote, a citadel of Greek culture in a wild land. And even 25 centuries later, so in 1899, when they were celebrating, yes, the 25th anniversary of the birth of the city, there was a reenactment of the Protus and Gyptus betrothal story. OK then, after the Greeks, the Romans. And to find out more about them, you can go to the Museum of the Roman Docks, just a little way set back from the harbour. The Romans first arrived about 200 BC, but it was in 49 BC that the big thing happened, namely the annexation of the city by one Julius Caesar. He fought for six months to get control of it, but then once he had, he decided not to destroy it, but to allow it to become a federal state. He obviously saw its potential, but he took precautions too by confiscating its wealth and its arms and its ships. So Marseille was going to be allowed to continue, but it wasn't going to be allowed to become a troublemaker. Roman Marseille changed its name slightly to Massilia, and it prospered, became a more and more important maritime trade centre. It was one of the places where Christianity first came to Europe. And all of this you can explore at the Museum of the Roman Docks, where there are lots of remains which have been dug up. Many of them actually came to light after the bombing of World War II. And you can learn all about the maritime exploits of the Romans and everyday life during the Marseille of their era. Moving on to the Middle Ages, a good place to find out a little bit about that is the Abbey de Saint-Victor, or St. Victor's Abbey, which you will find a little way up the hill on the southern side of the city, en route to Notre-Dame-de-la-Garde, a beautiful church building, much of which dates from the 11th to the 13th centuries, although its history goes much further back than that, because it was built on a site which had become a place of pilgrimage. The first Christians arrived in the area in the first century, and one of them, a Roman soldier called Victor, was buried here as a Christian martyr. He had refused to obey orders and make sacrifices to false idols. He was put to death for this, and he was buried here because the area was a necropolis, so bodies weren't allowed to be buried in the city centre, and this was one of the areas chosen as a burial site. Gradually, as Victor's story spread, pilgrims began to come here to pay him homage. 
and so a church was built. The version you see today was more or less completely rebuilt in the 12th and 13th centuries, and it became very important, one of the most powerful abbeys in the whole of France in the Middle Ages. One of their abbots, for example, became Pope, one Urban V in the 14th century. It went the way of so many abbeys and churches during the Revolution, abandoned, then more or less destroyed, but it was restored in the 19th century, and so today it can call itself one of the oldest abbeys in France. And apart from the architecture in general, the main draw is the large crypt, which has got sarcophagi from the 4th and 5th century in it, and which I have seen described as a jewel of early Christian art. The next monument which I've picked out would be quite easy to miss, but actually it's handily placed up in the Saint-Victor area, so if you do go up there, you probably want to have a look at both at once. It's a statue of one Pierre-Paul Puget, a sculptor from the 17th century, I think his dates are 1620 to 1690, who was Marseille-born, had a big effect on the city, and became nationally very well known too. So the statue is in the entrance to a park. The park is named after him too. It's called Le Jardin de la Colline Puget. And just inside the entrance, you will see him in all his marbled splendour. He travelled to Italy as a young man, as sculptors in those days tended to do. He returned to France and designed a number of things all over the south of the country. He gained a national reputation and went on to even bigger things, designing statues for the garden at Versailles, for example, and was eventually known, or nicknamed, the Michelangelo of France. He had quite a high opinion of himself, I think. is known to have said, for example, The marble trembles before me no matter how large it is. But he did leave some important buildings in his home city. He played a part in the 1670s in the design of the Canubière, the main road leading down to the harbour, and in designing the fish market, and perhaps best known today, the Vieux Charité, the old charity building up in Le Penier. His fish market, also known as the Al de Puget, is still there today, 20 columns, bit like a classical temple, really. It was restored relatively recently. It's used today as a market area and definitely worth a look if you're passing. Even more worth a look, the Vieux Charité, which actually I'll be coming back to in a later episode. It's an elegant courtyard building up in the Le Panier district, now used as an art gallery and utterly beautiful. And moving on then, leading from the 17th into the 18th century, something you will see down near the harbour. If you walk down the right-hand side, the northern side, you will find La Marie, the town hall. You can't miss it, look out for the flags. And if you look up then across the front, large and proud, a sculpture of Louis the Fourteenth, in recognition of the fact that he too played quite a role in the history of the city. You may know that he had a lot of problems in Paris with anti-royalists, a movement known as the Fronde, but he suspected that Marseille wasn't too loyal to him either. In fact, he once criticised it for having une trop grande passion pour la liberté, that is, for being rather too fond of freedom, and he wanted to curtail its freedom, so he had the two forts built, one on each side of the harbour entrance, the Fort Saint-Nicolas and the Fort Saint-Jean. And there he is then, on the Marie building, harbourside, keeping a close eye, on everything that comes in and out of this city. 
Well, Louis may have fought off revolution, but of course, revolution did indeed follow later in the 18th century. And a good place to find out more about the story of that, as it affects Marseille, is in a building called the Memorial de la Marseillaise, which is a little museum in which the story is told of how it was that France's national anthem has ended up being called after the city of Marseille. And if you go there, they will explain to you that in July 1792, 600 or so men set off from Marseille to Paris. This is all in the middle of La Terre, of course. And on their 28-day march across the country, they took to singing one song. And strange as it sounds today, it didn't come from Marseille at all. It had been written by a French officer from the north. I think it was actually called the Hymn of Alsace originally. But they sang it with gusto. It caught on. Rousing tune. Very rousing words. We'll come to those in a minute. And gradually it was taken up as the song of the revolution and called La Marseillaise because most people had first heard it sung by these troops from Marseille. I found it very interesting to read that as soon as Napoleon arrived in power, he promptly banned it. I don't think he wanted anything too revolutionary, just as he was trying to reimpose order on a country. But in 1830, at the time of the next revolution, it popped up again. In 1879, it was officially declared to be the national anthem of France. But it was banned again in the 20th century by the Vichy regime, who also feared it might stir up trouble. But that didn't last too long, because as soon as 1946 came along and order was put back, it was reinstated and has been, ever since, the national anthem of France. I don't know how many people are aware of exactly how bloodthirsty the words are, so I thought I might just take a moment to explain that. The opening verse is informing all the citizens that the day of glory has arrived. They are threatened by tyranny, foreigners of some description, I think, and they're going to raise blood-stained banners and set off to slay all these invaders who will otherwise, and I quote, slit the throats of your sons and your friends. Hence the chorus, aux armes citoyens, take up your arms, citizens, formez vos bataillons, form into battalions, marchons, marchons, let's march, qu'un sang impur abreuve nos sillons, and spill what they call the impure blood, all over our fields. Just remember that next time you hear it in, I don't know, a rugby stadium or somewhere. So this little museum, the Memorial de la Marseillaise, is a good place to go over all of this. And interestingly, it's cited in the old Jeu de Paume Hall. So that was the hall where the revolutionaries first met when they were deciding to set off to Paris to support the revolution. So not only have you got the displays to look at, you're also in a building of great significance in its own right. The seventh place on my list is the Musée Provençal, the Museum of Provence, which is a completely different thing. A museum of the history and culture of the local area during the 18th and 19th centuries. So full, full of lots of things, furniture and paintings, textiles and costumes, art, agricultural implements, things showing what everyday life was like domestically, stuff about the art and the popular traditions of Provence, as they put it on their website, from Louis Fourteenth to the present day. One particular feature is a big display on Santon, the little models, which began as figures to set up a creche at Christmas, but have widened out and become a real Provencal tradition. So you can see 
displays of whole Provençal villages set out in these little figures, some of them made of pottery, some of them sewn in cloth. It's quite a lively museum, has theatre and music attached and workshops, so you might, for example, get the chance to learn a little Provençal, should that be your thing. And next, a building which represents the great trading centre, which is Marseille, across the centuries, of course, but particularly in the 19th century, because that's when it was built. So on the harbour end of the Canebière, you will see a grand pillared building labelled Bourse et Chambre de Commerce, literally Stock Market and Chamber of Commerce, and subtitled actually Temple des Affaires, literally a temple of business. The façade of the building is covered in sculptures to commemorate all the things that have made Marseille rich and prosperous, commerce, navigation, science, industry, agriculture. There are sculptures of some of the great sailors, Columbus, Magellan and so on. In one of the guidebooks I saw a description of these sculptures as being to, quote, the glory of Marseille, queen of the Mediterranean, which receives riches from all over the world. It's definitely worth pausing to have a look, and actually, if you are able to get inside, I don't think you can normally, but I happen to be passing on an open day, if you can get in, you will find an enormous hall with shiny marble floors and sculpted marble panels all the way around the edge, representing the areas of the world that Marseille has traded with, Asia, Africa, and so on. Big marble plaques for 36 different countries that they've been trading with, artwork, paintings of Arabs arriving at Marseille's port. I saw one of Chinese visitors disembarking, paintings of the port in different eras, and a monumental staircase up to the equally impressive upper floor, where you'll find a whole selection of things, including the Salon d'Honneur, so the room where heads of state and ambassadors were received. And that too is hung with pictures and tapestries on cities that Marseille has traded with, Odessa, London, Calcutta, Hamburg. There's a plaque commemorating the founding of the original Chamber of Commerce as far back as 1599. There's a late 19th century clock from which you can tell the time in Marseille and in other far-flung places such as Saigon. So the whole thing combines to really give the picture of Marseille as an important centre for maritime trade, a place connecting France and indeed Europe with far-flung places. My next item is two places in one, really, both of which commemorate World War II in Marseille. The Memorial de la Déportation, the Deportation Memorial, and a square named the Square of the 23rd of January, 1943. But first, a little background. So, Marseille was bombed by the Germans and Italians as early as June 1940. It wasn't occupied, at least not by the Germans, in the early part of the war. It was part of the Free Zone. But the Germans arrived in November 1942, and a much harsher regime began, and lasted until 1944, when poor Marseille was bombed again, this time by the US Air Force, part of the defeat of the Germans. Until, eventually, in August 1944, the city was liberated. The square which I mentioned, the Place du 23 Janvier, the square of the 23rd of January 1943, is named after really the worst day of the entire war, as far as Marseille was concerned. So on the day before, there'd been a huge crackdown by the French police, the milice, working on the orders of the Germans. 40,000 people had been arrested, 
2,000 Jews and refugees from the East were rounded up, sent to the concentration camps. And then, at 6am on the 23rd, Marseille awoke to something much more horrific. The SS had surrounded the old port, and they were in the process of evacuating the whole of the Le Panier district. Loudspeaker orders told the population to leave. 20,000 people were forced to hurry away, with only just whatever they could carry, and then followed the more or less total destruction of that area. 1,500 tenement blocks were dynamited. That explains, of course, why when you look at that side of the port, you see so many more new buildings. I think it would be no exaggeration to say that this was the blackest day in the whole of Marseille's history, and all the more terrible for the knowledge that much of it had been perpetrated by the Vichy regime, so nominally the French government, who justified what they had done as follows. Marseille is a hideout for international bandits. This city is the canker of Europe, and Europe cannot live as long as Europe remains unpurged. And the museum where you can learn so much more about the history of wartime in Marseille is the Mémorial de la Déportation. It's an ugly square concrete block built in 1943 by the Germans to use as a military hospital. Much of it was underground, in fact. You'll find it down on the right-hand side of the harbour, just as the road is turning right off towards the newer port areas at the foot of the Saint-Jean Fort. And inside you will discover that this building was put to a different use in 1995, on the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the concentration camps when it was turned into a museum and a memorial to the deportation, a place to remember what had happened during the war here in Marseille. Inside you'll find documents, photographs, little films, testimonies and a wall of names on which is written the names and ages of all of those who were deported from Marseille. Even today it's a work in progress. As new names are discovered, they are added. There's a timeline which will give you an overview of wartime events here. There's information about the resistance in Marseille and the terrible German retaliation. There's information about all the main events, how the French police and the German SS in combination organised the roundups, especially of Jews, the evacuations and the destruction of the port. There are lots of testimonials from individuals which helped to build up a picture of exactly what happened. For example, there's Jacques P, born in 1926, so still a teenager when he was arrested at a resistance meeting here in Marseille, sent to Buchenwald, and eventually liberated by the Americans. Then there's Ida Palombo, just 19, and living with her Jewish family in the Le Panier district when her father was arrested in the January 1943 roundups and deported. She and the rest of her family went into hiding, but a year later they were denounced, presumably by neighbours, and sent to Auschwitz. She too managed to survive, and when she arrived back in Marseille, she married David Palombo, who was the only surviving member of his family, and she then spent much of her time working to ensure that stories like hers didn't get forgotten. She worked, for example, on research for the Wall of Names, gave lots of talks in schools, and every year she accompanied groups to Auschwitz. You can find little signs of World War II elsewhere in the city. For example, up at Notre-Dame-de-la-Garde, on one of the walls, you will find a sign which reads, This wall bears marks of the battle for the liberation of Marseille 
15th to the 25th of August, 1944. Also, in a little park opposite the Saint-Victor Abbey, there is a memorial board for another Marseille Resistance member, Bertie Albrecht, who, during the 1930s, had taken in German-Jewish refugees and helped many of them move onwards out of France. During the war, she helped people cross the demarcation line into Free France. She ended up in Lyon, where she organised the Mouvement de Libération Nationale, so a resistance movement, but who, in the end, paid with her life for the very courageous activities that she'd been doing. She was arrested, imprisoned by the Germans, and in her cell took her own life, it's thought, because she feared that under torture she might give information away. All of those, then, are very specific places, and the last one I want to mention is the Musée d'Histoire, so the Museum of History which covers, as it says itself, 26 centuries of Marseille history through 13 sequences, all in chronological order, from the first prehistoric occupations to much more recent developments in the city of Marseille. There you can find boat remains from the 3rd century BC, pottery from the Middle Ages, all made in the local pink clay, a room explaining how the two forts came to be built in the 17th century, the story of Marseille during the plague in 1720, more information on the history of the Marseillaise, and so on. So a real broad overview of Marseille and all the significant moments of its past. So that ends my review of places to visit if you want to find history in Marseille. They'll all be listed on the blog post along with links so that you can find them more easily or find out more information. And alongside too, some photographs. So do go and have a look at that if you have a moment. In the next episode, I'm going to focus on one half of central Marseille, so the old port, the one street of which everyone knows the name in Marseille, namely La Canebière, and the hillside which leads up the southern side of the harbour towards that icon of the city, Notre-Dame-de-la-Garde. So I hope very much that you'll be able to join me for that. And meanwhile... Thank you very much for listening today and goodbye. Un grand merci et au revoir.